Part two, chapter twelve of Garcia Marino by Augustin Berth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. A violent reaction, eighteen sixty three. After two years of power exercised solely for the good of his country, Garcia Marino could boast of having all good and Catholic people on his side, but among the Freemasons, revolutionists, and radicals, he was the object of undying hatred and execration. The league which had long been formed to upset him chose for its head the miserable Urbina, who had been ignominiously driven from the country three years before. Pedro Carbo and Dr. P. Moncoya, two violent Freemasons and declared enemies of Garcia Marino, became the most active instruments in the plot. As, however, no one liked to embark in any revolution which might compromise his safety, Urbina determined to appeal to the assistance of Peru through the intervention of Castilla. A new pretext for attacking Garcia Marina was found in an old proposal of his to place Ecuador under the protection of the French government. This was construed into an act of high treason, and Garcia Marina was openly accused of wishing to sell his country to France. A letter written by him and sold to Castilla became the text of this false assertion, although it was simply a proposal to be submitted, if necessary, to the representatives of the people. Gomez de la Torre and Aviles, although official enemies of the president, entirely exculpated him from the charge. But what could their protestations avail in face of the thousand voices of the press, instigated by all the Freemason lodges? The mass of the people became persuaded that Garcia Marino had conceived the idea of delivering up Ecuador to the French government, which had already taken possession of Mexico. Fortunately, the clamors of the press did not intimidate Garcia Marino. He sent a temperate answer to Castilla, who threatened war, fortified Guayaquil, and began the necessary preparations for defense. The intervention of Great Britain prevented the breaking out of hostilities, an intervention which was accepted by Garcia Marino as a manner of settling the dispute in conformity with the national honor, while Castilla was too glad to find an excuse for escaping a conflict for which he was unprepared. To revenge himself, however, Castilla broke off diplomatic relations with Ecuador and opened his gates to all conspirators against her. Under his authority, in October 1862, Urbina equipped a vessel in the port of Caleo to attempt a descent on any point of the Ecuador coast, so as to organize a rebellion. It seemed a good moment. Flores was very ill at Guayaquil, Garcia Marino beaten at Tolkien, any number of disaffected people would be ready to hail Urbina as a liberator. Hardly, however, had he arrived at the little port of Peta, in a vessel baptized under a false name and under a Chilean flag, than Garcia Marino had detected the plot and signalized them as pirates deserving the worst punishment. Whilst the body of troops were prepared to obstruct their landing, a circular from Garcia Marino to all the diplomatic body appealed to the rights of nations so shamefully violated by the government of Peru. At the same time he denounced to Castilla the act of brigandage, committed under his auspices, and summoned him, if he wished for war, to do it openly and loyally. Thus exposed by the Ecuador government and the indignant representations of the diplomatic corps, Castilla found himself compelled to stop his friends and place an embargo on their vessel. Fortunately, this happened at the very moment when his nomination as president expired. He was replaced by the brave General St. Roman, who disavowed the disgraceful treaty concluded with France on the 25th of January, and hastened to enter into amicable and pacific relations with Ecuador. Finding that nothing was to be gained in that quarter, the revolutionists turned towards Mosquera, the new president of Granada, who hated the church with all his heart, and Garcia Marino as its warmest supporter. His idea was to engulf the three republics, New Granada, 
Venezuela, and Ecuador into one, like the United States, in which under Bolivar had formed the province of Colombia. He hoped to remain long enough in power to effect this, and to destroy through the whole territory the reign of Christ and of his church. All the revolutionists, consequently, hailed his project with joy, and Urbina, in a letter from Lima, hastening to beg for his intervention, repeating the lie of Garcia Marina's intention of annexing Ecuador to the French Empire, and concluding with the words, I do not insist on the question of federation. My one and only ambition is to drive from Ecuador the two men who are the ruin of South America. When this object is accomplished, my mission is at an end. The majority of our citizens will carry out their will." be persuaded that they will repudiate the Jesuitical and colonial system inaugurated by Garcia Marina and Flores. Mosquera knew perfectly well the falsehood of the allusion to the French protectorate, but as Urbina's views as to Ecuador tallied with his own, he pretended that they had indubitable proof of the intention to crush the Republic under the double yoke of monarchism and fanaticism, and that the only hope was to the resurrection of Colombia under the federative form. He ended with the words, if Garcia Marina and Flores will not submit to the popular will, their fall is certain, in spite of all the protectorates under which they may strive to shelter themselves. Whilst these two traitors, each working for his own personal ends, were closely united in their plot to overturn Garcia Marino, Mosquera wrote a letter to the President of Ecuador, in order to reopen negotiations for the reconstitution of the Colombian Republic under a federal government. But Garcia Marina knew his correspondent too well to be taken in by such specious phrases. Then Mosquera wrote again, saying that, to be able to confer more easily with the President of Ecuador on the interests of their respective countries, he had resolved to transfer the seat of his government to the southern frontier. This significant movement made Garcia Marino feel the necessity of speaking more clearly and cutting short the hopes of the despot. He replied that he should be happy to grant him an interview which would ensure amicable relations between their two countries. But, he added, I should be wanting in frankness if I were not to declare to you that in such communications we cannot accept any proposal which would tend to merge the two nationalities into one, under such a form of government as you have adopted. Ecuador has confided her destinies and her future to institutions totally different from yours, institutions which are too dear to her people and her representatives to be ever sacrificed by them. The Constitution which governs us, our personal convictions, and the general opinion of the country imperiously demand that we should remain as we are. Between these two leaders, one of whom had sworn to annex Ecuador to his states, and the other to die a thousand times rather than yield an inch of its territory, war became inevitable. In fact, Mosquera was only waiting for a favorable opportunity to begin the campaign, and as the meeting of the Congress of Ecuador was at hand, he reckoned on some stormy parliamentary debates to pave the way for a rising against the president. His calculations were, alas, but too well founded. End of part two, chapter twelve.